Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Desperate yells and the crash of buildings collapsing filter through the thick walls of the castle keep at Mirabeau. The small party barricaded inside look at each other, worry etched on their faces. They strain to hear anything which might give a clue as to exactly which bit of the town outside has fallen now. A clatter of wooden poles and the squeals of confused animals. That must be the marketplace. The rumble of collapsing masonry. That'll be one of the stone defensive walls that hadn't been repaired properly for years. The terrified snorts and screams of horses. The stables have been broken open. The army rampaging through the town isn't far away now. It won't be long before the keep, the one truly secure bit of Mirabeau Castle, is surrounded and cut off. And that makes one sound more important than all the rest. A frantic, quiet scratching coming from the corner of the room. At a desk, a clerk is moving his quill as fast as he can across slips of parchment. He's writing SOS letters. His hands are shaking and there are black ink flecks on his face, but he finishes his work. Two letters are sealed and handed over to the riders who hurtle down the stone stairs of the castle, leap onto horses and gallop off through the streets, dodging the attacking army. They make it. They get away. Hang on, you might be thinking. If riding away is that easy, why don't they all do it? Well, they can't. Or at least, the most important person in there can't. Eleanor of Aquitaine. Eleanor is almost 80 years old. Once upon a time, she would have had no qualms about hopping into the saddle and charging off, leaving her enemies in her dust. Those days are long gone. She's supposed to be in retirement, living out the peaceful last few years of her life at the beautiful abbey in Fontevraud. That's where her second husband, the legendary Plantagenet King Henry II, is buried, along with her favourite son, Richard the Lionheart. Yet today, on July the 30th, 1202, she's not at Fontevraud at all, but in the middle of a siege. Caught up in a war that has yet again pitted one member of the Plantagenet family against another. This time, Eleanor's youngest son, John, King of England and Lord of the Plantagenet Empire, is butting heads with a coalition of enemies led by Eleanor's grandson, the teenage Arthur, Duke of Brittany. Arthur's forces have been threatening Aquitaine, which is why Eleanor is on the road in the first place. She's trying to get from Fontevraud to Poitiers, the capital of the duchy, 
to hold it safe for John. But Arthur's troops have been much too fast for her. They've been closing in on her and her attendants at such a rate that she's had to dive for cover in Mirabeau Castle. Unfortunately, Eleanor and her attendants will only be safe in the keep for a short time. They're in no shape to wait out a long siege. They can hole up here for days at most, maybe only a few dozen hours. Eleanor's been in plenty of scrapes over the years, but even by her standards, this is a bad one. As usual, we don't know exactly what Eleanor's thinking or feeling at this moment. Is it genuine fear? A weary sense of, here we go again? Is she making a mental note to give Arthur a clip around the ear and tell him he's definitely not getting a £10 note inside his Christmas card this year? We don't know. But there's one thing I do feel confident about speculating. Eleanor has almost certainly given up all hope of being rescued. There's no chance of help coming from Fontevraud. It's a dual monastery of monks and nuns. Poitiers is too far, and her son John is 80 miles away in Le Mans. It looks like Eleanor's luck has finally run out. And yet, when it comes to the Plantagenets, there's always another twist in the tale. I'm Dan Jones, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. A Dynasty to Die For, Season 3. Episode 2, Save the Queen. What I love about history is not just that it's full of amazing stories, but that these stories tell us so much about how we got where we are today. And if you're listening to This Is History, you probably agree. So that's why I'm pleased to recommend a podcast I think you'll love, Throughline from NPR. On every episode, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? Episodes take you on unexpected journeys through all kinds of subjects, like what history might have smelled like, where credit scores came from, and how China became a global superpower. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed, giving you a valuable perspective on a world that doesn't always seem to make sense. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Arthur of Brittany, the 15-year-old whose forces have Eleanor trapped in Mirabeau Keep, is a Plantagenet golden boy. He's the only son of John's elder brother, Geoffrey, who died before he was even born. The people of Brittany worship the ground he walks on. To them, he's destined to grow up and become as mighty a king as his legendary namesake 
with the round table and the sword in the stone. So why is Arthur now attacking Granny Dearest? Well, it's because, and get used to hearing this, John did something stupid. Last episode, we heard about the Treaty of Legule, where Philip Augustus ran diplomatic rings around John, getting him to agree to a deal recognising Philip as the ultimate feudal boss of Western Europe, and making John pay for the privilege of essentially licking his boots. That earned John the nickname Soft Sword. It also made it damn near certain that if Philip saw the faintest glimmer of an opportunity, he would use the Legule Treaty to beat John over the head. So, what does John do? Well, almost immediately after Legule is agreed, in the early summer of 1200, he gives Philip a lot more than a glimmer. He presents him with an open goal. It starts when John gets married. Now, wait a second, you might be thinking. Isn't John already married? You'd be right. He actually got hitched in 1189, right at the start of his brother Richard's reign, to a fabulously wealthy heiress called Isabel of Gloucester. What's more, Isabel of Gloucester is still very much alive. But John has taken a somewhat fluid view of his obligations towards her. As soon as he becomes king, he decides he wants another crack at a wedding and has a panel of bishops cancel his existing marriage on the grounds that he and Isabel are cousins and should never have been allowed to marry in the first place. It's a classic kingly excuse for switching wives. Then John sets his sights on a new Isabel, or rather, an Isabella. This one is also a wealthy heiress, that kind of goes without saying. She's called Isabella of Angoulême, and her strategically valuable lands are way down in Aquitaine. Nothing about this is very romantic, but nor is it totally crazy in theory, until you consider that Isabella of Angoulême is engaged to someone else. And she's 12. Now, we're rightly disgusted every time we come across something like this in our story. John is a 32-year-old man marrying a child. But again, it's not totally out of the ordinary in the medieval marriage market. What's far less OK, by their standards, is that in order for John to get hold of this new wife he has to basically abduct the girl from under the nose of her current fiancé. In 1200, once the annulment of his first marriage has come through, John heads down to Angoulême and tells young Isabella's family that their daughter is trading up. She was due to marry a guy called Hugh of Lusignan. That match was going to make peace between their respective families, who've been beefing for generations. Now she's going to be Queen of England instead. And before you can say, uh, hold on, isn't this actually going to unite the two warring families of Angoulême and Lusignan against John and send them running to the King of France to complain? John has gone and married young Isabella, which is great for about five milliseconds. And then, well, the families of Angoulême and Lusignan unite against him and... yeah. 
By going through with the theft of Isabella, John probably thought he was going to gain more control over Aquitaine. Instead, Aquitaine explodes into rebellion. Philip Augustus commands John to come to his court in Paris and face the music. Philip has every right to do this under the terms of the Treaty of Ligule. Then, when John refuses, Philip declares that he is no longer the ruler of the Plantagenet lands in France and that Arthur of Brittany ought to take them over. Hey presto, within a few months of agreeing a fantastic peace treaty with Philip, John has managed to turn everyone against him and incite a full-blown war, backed by the French crown and led by Arthur, with Isabella's furious fiancé Hugh of Lusignan at his side. That's how we arrive back at Mirabeau, where this episode began, with the Plantagenet Empire a whisker away from falling to Arthur and John's mum Eleanor besieged in Mirabeau Castle. At dawn on the 1st of August, the people hiding in the keep are almost certainly contemplating surrender to Arthur. Sooner or later, probably today, they'll have to accept that the lad is going to take Eleanor prisoner, march into Poitiers with her at his side, and proclaim himself the rightful lord. We can only imagine the mood of fear and desperation among Eleanor's party as they listen to the army systematically dismantling the town outside. But that army is about to suffer a very nasty shock. As first light breaks, there comes a rumbling of hooves from the north. A rumbling that becomes a thundering. Then into view comes a huge, heavily armed body of knights and mercenaries. They're whooping and howling as they barrel towards Arthur's troops. The cavalry has arrived. The tables are turned. Now Arthur's men panic as this new force surrounds them. And they're given two options. Surrender or die. So who is it that's ridden to the rescue? I can hardly believe I'm about to say this. I reckon Arthur can hardly believe it. And even Eleanor, proud matriarch that she is, well, if she's honest, I think she can hardly believe it either. The man at the head of this relieving army, who's ridden non-stop day and night, covering 80 miles in less than 48 hours, is John. Last episode, I may have given you the impression that John was somewhat less than Great King material, especially when compared with his father, Old Henry, and brother, Richard the Lionheart. I still stand by that. But I'm also in favour of giving credit where it's due. And there's no doubt that in late July 1202, John pulls off an incredible manoeuvre, which any member of the Plantagenet dynasty would have been proud of. Obviously, it's a testament to just how much respect Eleanor still inspires in her family that her grandson Arthur sees her as the political key to unlock Aquitaine and that John would bust his tail to come to her rescue. But props to John too. In racing down to Mirabeau to rescue his mum from his nephew, he doesn't just save the day, he saves his empire 
He shows that when the heat is on, he can handle it. Having said all that, though, Mirabeau is something of a hollow triumph for John. For one thing, he really shouldn't have had to resort to these last-minute heroics in the first place. Eleanor was only in that situation because of a whole series of gaffes and unforced errors that John made himself. By stealing Isabella so blatantly, he rubbed some powerful people up the wrong way, and then was caught flat-footed when his bad behaviour blew back on him. And then there's what he does after the victory. Because the way he mistreated Isabella and Hugh of Lusignan is nothing compared with what comes next. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. The prisoners being marched away from Mirabeau rattle as they move. They're fettered in irons, their chains clinking with every jolt and rut in the road. It's a pitiful sight, but John loves it. He parades them 250 miles north from Mirabeau all the way to Normandy. He writes gleeful letters to his English nobles, telling them he's captured 200 knights. Literally all of the leading rebels are in his clutches, including his nephew, Arthur of Brittany himself. Even the famously chivalrous William Marshall can't help gloating. He writes to the Lusignan family to tell them that this should teach them a lesson about what happens to troublemakers. Marshall is very much on message because John has decided to make an example of the rebels. Arthur is sent off to be imprisoned in a succession of castles, ending up in the Norman capital of Rouen. Hugh of Lusignan is locked up in Caen, and about 25 others are put on ships and sent to the dungeons of Corfe Castle in Dorset. This isn't some light-touch house arrest either. It's heavy chains, no visitors, maximum security, bread and water if you're lucky. John wants his enemies to suffer, physically and emotionally. He's got a real cruel streak, and I suppose the Freudians among you might think that's no real surprise, considering that when he was five years old, his dad locked his mum in prison for 15 years. Cruelty by itself isn't a problematic trait for a ruler in the Middle Ages, indeed in any age of history. What is a problem is cruelty combined with incompetence. Had John put his prisoners under lock and key, then used that fact to negotiate peace with all their families and Philip Augustus, he'd have done very well. He doesn't do that. Instead, he manages to engineer a completely different crisis. It starts in the immediate aftermath of Mirabeau, 
with the two guys who were at his side and personally captured Arthur, Hugh and the rest. They're called William de Roche and William de Bruges. When they hand Arthur over to John, William de Roche asks respectfully if he might have the honour of deciding where and in what conditions Arthur is held. Yet as soon as John has Arthur in his grasp, he completely ghosts de Roche. That may well be his prerogative as king and lord, but in every other sense, it's just plain dumb. De Roche takes massive offence, and a few months later, he rebels against John. John confiscates his lands, and all of a sudden, another armed conflict blows up on the borders of Aquitaine. Facing this new threat, John tries to make nice with the Lusignans and get them back on side by releasing Hugh. But this just makes the situation even more unstable. Aquitaine was briefly saved. Now, once again, it's on the brink. Then things really start getting ugly. In Corfe Castle, the prisoners John sent there try to break out. They manage to overpower their guards and take control of the castle's central tower. In response, John's troops surround the tower and blockade it. No food is allowed in, and no one is allowed out. Over the course of a few weeks, almost all the prisoners starve to death. Even by medieval standards, that's a horrific thing to do. It wins John no friends among the relatives of the prisoners, and what little reputation he has left as an honourable man is shredded. With Arthur of Brittany, things are a bit more complicated. If John kills his nephew, he's going to be in trouble. Arthur was once Richard's official heir, and he has a huge following. But this same influential power base means he'll always be a danger to John, so releasing him is out of the question. The sensible thing to do would be to send Arthur to an isolated prison in England. Treat him well enough and make sure he can't stir up any more trouble. But that's not what happens. After only a year, in 1203, Arthur disappears. At least, that's the official story. Over the years that follow, dozens of theories about what really happened to him will be proposed. Some say he starved, others that he caught a disease and died. But the one that seems most likely to me, the one based on the most informed sources and which fits other events most logically, is this. John is seriously angry with his nephew, not just politically inconvenienced, but personally hurt. Over the months that he has Arthur in prison, he seems to convince himself that as long as the young pretender is around, he'll have no peace. In early 1203, John orders one of his advisers, named Hubert de Burgh, to have Arthur blinded and castrated. There are some parts of the medieval world where no one would have batted an eyelid at this. It isn't quite the done thing in Normandy, though, and Hubert can't bring himself to do it. He spares Arthur and just puts the word out that the boy has died, figuring that John won't care too much either way, 
and that once the people of Brittany think their hero is toast, they'll chill out a bit and get in line. No such luck. The Bretons hear the rumour and convene a special assembly to denounce John as a murderer. They're madder than ever, and it seems unlikely that any Plantagenet will ever be able to set foot in the duchy again without being instantly lynched. So what does John do now? The best place source we have for what happens next is a chronicle compiled in Margam Abbey in Wales. That's a long way from Rouen, but the chronicle has a very good source. William de Bruce, one of the Williams I mentioned earlier, who helped catch Arthur and is one of John's closest henchmen. After John had captured Arthur and kept him alive in prison for some time, after dinner on the Thursday before Easter, when he was drunk and possessed by the devil, he slew him with his own hand, tied a heavy stone to the body and cast it into the river Seine. It was discovered by a fisherman in his net and taken for secret burial for fear of the tyrant in the priory at Beck. I know. Wow. If this chronicle is right, and, as we will see, there are many good reasons to believe it is, John personally murdered Arthur in a drunken rage. That's not the normal cut and thrust of 13th century politics. It's completely and utterly psycho. We know the Plantagenets are a dysfunctional family. We've seen them fight each other and put each other in prison. But no one has gone so far as to kill a family member. But that's John for you. He doesn't do things by halves. He's cruel, vengeful and ruthless, and he's prepared to suffer the consequences of actions most other people would consider far beyond the pale. Which is just as well, because although John is never formally charged with Arthur's murder, once it becomes known that the boy is gone and isn't coming back, his reign is plunged into a crisis worse than anything that's come before. Has bad King John got what it takes to keep hold of the tiller in the storm that's coming? We'll find out in the next episode of This Is History. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.